Well, I hope everybody had a great Easter. I know uh, some of you weren't able to join us last week because you were with uh, friends and family and out of town, and so we are glad you're back. And uh, we just had an awesome Easter service, had a great crowd, great service, and uh, really... Uh, it was just awesome. But anyways, uh, my Easter dinner, though, was not as awesome as the service was. And what I mean is, usually we have like, you know, certain dinners that go with certain things, right? And so every Easter, we have the same thing. We, we make handballs and we make cheesy potatoes. That's our go-to for Easter. That's, w- that's what we do. That's what we've done for a long time. Doesn't matter anything else. Just those two things. Well, This Easter, Liz and I are kind of on a trying to get a little bit healthier kick, and so instead of handballs and cheesy potatoes, we had turkey burgers and salad, and I took a picture of it, and I I thought, this is like the saddest Easter dinner ever. I mean, we just had it like on a little saucer, and anyways, uh, but it it was good, but it just wasn't, you know, like Easter, Easter dinner, and it's just funny how we have, you know, our set meals that go with our certain traditions, you know, like, you know, Thanksgiving's always turkey for our family, and and handballs at Easter, and usually at Christmas time, it's it's ham, and it reminds me of... uh, a story that I heard about a young couple that had just gotten married, and it was their first Easter together. And like a lot of people, they had ham for Easter. And so the couple, they were, the husband, you know, was trying to, to do a good job being a good husband, and so he was trying to help his wife in the kitchen. And she said, well, why don't you take care of the ham? And he, she handed him a recipe and said, this is my mother's recipe, just follow the recipe. And uh, so he was trying to do his best, and he got to a part, and he read, uh, cut the top off the ham. And uh, he thought, well, what's this about? Why, why would you cut the top off the ham? And so he asked his wife, and he said, why, why is it that you're supposed to cut the ham off? Wouldn't you just all cook it all together? And uh, she said, no. And he said, well, why not? And he said, she said, well, it's because, you know, if you cut off the ham, it makes it, it, makes it cook more even. It tastes better. Just it's better tasting. Just follow the directions and, and do what you're supposed to do. And he just couldn't, he was newly married. He hadn't learned his lesson yet. He just could not let it go. And so... He kept asking questions. Yeah, but why? How come it makes it cook better? And finally, she said, okay, honestly, I don't know. This is my mother's recipe. This is the way we've always done it, and this is how you're supposed to do it. Just cut the top off the ham. So he did it, but he was still curious. She said, you know, if you're that curious about it, call my mom. It's her recipe. Ask her about it. So he does. Again, he was newly married. Hadn't le- you don't mess with mo- mother-in-law, but anyways, he calls her up and says, hey, I'm following this recipe, and, and why is it that you cut the top of the ham off? And she said, same thing his wife said, well, it makes it cook more even and it tastes better. He said, yeah, but why? And so she got frustrated. She said, you know, it's not really my recipe either. It's, it's my grandmother's. You can call her. So he called her up and asked her and she said, well, the reason why we cut the top off the ham is because that's a really old recipe. And back in that day, we didn't have very big ovens. And so we had to cut the top of the ham off just to fit it in there. See, sometimes we have our habits and our traditions and our things that we do just because we've always done them, and there's nothing wrong with, I love, I honestly love tradition. I love family traditions, and my wife can speak for that. I'm a very, I like to have traditions, things that we do every year, because they have meaning and they have significance. But sometimes we do things over and over and over again, and they begin to lose their meaning, and we begin to lose sight of what's really important. And sometimes that happens in the church as well. And really, it happened in the church before the church was the church. Before Jesus came to the earth, there were uh, Jews that they believed in the one true God. And there was this group, we kind of pick on this one group, the Pharisees. 
And the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' day and, and also before that. And they were the ones that were enforcing the laws that God had given. God had given them laws they were supposed to follow. But what they did was they began, the Pharisees began to make their own laws to enforce God's law. For example, God said, uh, keep, keep the Sabbath holy. And so they said, well, here's, here's the definition of what work is. And they, you can't walk, you know, you can only walk a certain amount of distance on the Sabbath. And you couldn't do this on the Sabbath. They began to, to kind of make their own laws to enforce the laws that God had made. And what happened over time is it became more about what they thought than what God thought. And Jesus, when he came to the earth, he tried to set them straight, didn't he? He said, you, you've ignored the bigger picture just because you're following your own rules. So I think it's important that we ask ourselves from time to time, is the church still being the church? Is the church doing the things that God called the church to do? But I think there's some other questions we have to ask first. One question is this, what is the church? What is the church supposed to be? And I think in order to answer that question, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the church. And the other question we have to ask is, what has it become? What was the church? What is church? And what has it become? I remember this little thing. Excuse me, I got a little bit of a cold or something. I'm having a hard time talking. But I remember this little thing when I was a kid. I can barely do it. Apparently, I've got fatter fingers than I did then. And I wear a wedding ring now. But my mom, she taught me this little thing. And maybe your mom's taught you this. You remember this? You'd fold your hands together like this. Nancy knows what I'm talking about. And she'd say, this is the church. And this is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. And, I, you know, I remember going, I think I taught that to my kids. We haven't talked about it lately. And, uh, you know, nothing wrong with that song, but isn't that funny, the imagery, that, that this is the church? And sometimes um, that is our attitude, that church can become a building, right? When we talk about church, it becomes a place that we go or a building. Sometimes we treat it like a community center, you know, a place with, with programs, you know, great programs. And I had a really funny call this week. It probably just struck me funnier than what it really was. But I was answering the phones. Uh, Tina was out of the office one day, and somebody called up. And I remember ans answering the phone, and the lady on the other line was kind of like abrupt, very energetic and just very abrupt. And she said, hey, yeah, when's the uh, free food box giveaway? And I... <laughs> I didn't chuckle, but I almost did, and I, it took me just a few seconds to figure out, what is she talking about? Well, we have a food pantry here in the church, and, and uh, so every Wednesday we open it up, and people that need help with food, they come and they get food, and uh, so I figured out what she meant, but it was funny because the way she phrased it, it was almost like she was calling into a radio you know, program, you know, wanting, to, wanting to be put into a drawing. I mean, it just it struck me funny, and I thought, you know, that's, I was working on the sermon at the time, and I thought, sometimes that's kind of how we treat the church, that it's just, it's a community center. Sometimes we treat it like a club. We like it because it's a place where we feel like we belong. I guess the question is, is it a place where everybody belongs? So the question is, what is the church? If I sat down with you after the service, I'm not going to do this, but imagine I did and we were on camera and I said, I want you to tell me what the church is. What would you say? How would you describe the church? Now, I'm not asking you what you like about church or what you don't like about church. I'm not asking you what feels like church to you. I'm not asking what your church was like when you were growing up. I'm not asking you an address, the location, or a building. That's not what I'm asking you when I ask you what the church is. Because guess what? I don't like what you like. And you don't like what I like. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, we might like some of the same things, but inevitably, anytime you get more than one person involved, you are going to have clashing agendas, right? 
And so if I were to ask you to define the church, you can't just talk about all the things that you like about church. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you what the church is. If you've made it all about the things that you like, then you've made it about the wrong thing. So I'm asking, what is the church? Zach and I, every now we have this conversation. Uh, He'll send me a text message and say, hey, what do you think of this song? Nine times out of ten, I say, I like it. Let's do it. Every now and again, I say, I hate it. And sometimes it's because I don't like the words, and that's one thing. But usually it's, it's, the, it's just I don't like the song. I don't like the sound of it. And I say, I don't like it, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. My point is this, that it can't ever be about my preference when it comes to the songs here. I heard one guy talk about um, how he said, I hope there's always songs in church that I don't like because that means there's people in the church that aren't like me, and that's exactly how it ought to be. That, that ought to be our attitude in, in the church, but sometimes we, we have a hard time with that. We make it about the things that we like. So if I were to ask you the question, using your Bible alone, using the Bible alone, how would you describe what the church is? What would you say? Now, I don't know about you, but I've got two kids, five and seven years old, and guess what? They lose stuff all the time. And uh, it's not even that they lose stuff. It's just like they don't look for stuff. They'll come in and say, hey, I don't know where this thing is. And I'll be like, that thing literally right where you're standing. But anyways, they lose stuff. And I'm not the kind of parent that I I try not to just coddle them every step of the way. So I'll say, okay, where'd you leave it? I mean, when's the last time you remember having it? You know, if we want to find something that we lose, it's important that we go back to the beginning, right? Where we left off. And that's what we need to do, I think, when we're talking about what the church is as well. So where did the church begin? There's a familiar passage of scripture. If you were here uh, last Sunday, you heard it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Where did the church begin? That's an interesting question. When we ask the question, where or when did the church begin? Because when we ask that kind of question, it already kind of reveals some uh, what we call presuppositions, some assumptions about church already, that we think we can nail down a date, that we think we can nail down a certain place that we would limit the church. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we already assume some things about church just in that question. But when did the church begin? You know, for example, we might say, well, this church was established, and I should probably know the year, and I don't. Uh, it's in our church history, and we could put a date on it. Well, our church was established this date. But the truth is, there were people that were meeting together as a church long before the official church was established. So trying to, to, to say when the church was established, that's a difficult thing to do. Just for kicks and giggles, I, I looked it up. I asked, I asked Google, I said, hey, when did the church begin? And guess what? It was nothing but a bunch of different conflicting opinions and arguments about when people thought the church was officially established. And the truth is, I don't think we can put a date on it. And I don't think that when is the right question. I think when we're talking about the beginning of the church, we really ought to ask the question, who? If we want to know where the church began, you really have to start with the question, who? This is what I mean. Matthew chapter 16 Verse 18, it says this, And I tell you, you are Peter. His name was Simon. Jesus changes it. You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not, prevent, so shall not prevail against it. 
The word that Jesus used here is a word, uh, ecclesia is how you pronounce it. That's the word that we translate as church. And he wasn't talking about a building here. He was talking about something else. Now, there are a lot of words for church, and there are some words that, that point to a physical place, the Lord's house. And then sometimes we do that today, don't we? I mean, I'll tell my wife when I'm going to work, hey, I'm headed to the church. You know, it, it becomes a point of reference. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us, with the church building become, becoming a point of reference. The problem is when the church building becomes a point of significance. This is a building. That's what this place is. This is a building. One of the things that drives me crazy is when I hear people say, they'll say something, they'll say, oh, I guess I shouldn't have said that in church. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? I have no idea what you're talking about when we think that, that we can say something outside of this building and not say it in here. I mean, we're going to talk, so this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but when you read the Bible, you learn that the Holy Spirit that the church is, is us. And so if there's a certain way we ought to behave, it doesn't matter whether you're in the church or outside the church, there's a way that a Christian's supposed to act. The building has absolutely nothing to do with it. When Jesus says here that I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, he uses the word ecclesia, which means assembly. It means gathering of people. Jesus wasn't talking about a building. He wasn't talking about a place. He was talking about who? He was talking about people. So Jesus, when he goes, gets ready to build a church, he doesn't start with blueprints. He doesn't start with building plans. Actually, there's kind of this irony here because Jesus, you remember what he said shortly before he died? He was talking about the temple. He said, I'll tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. And people thought, this guy is crazy. It took years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? They were focused on a physical building. Jesus was talking about himself, his body. He wasn't talking about a physical place. He was talking about something spiritual. Jesus, he didn't start with blueprints. He started with people. I've been reading a book this week, and it's a book I've read before, and for whatever reason, it just really jumped out at me, and I've really been enjoying it. It's a book called The Invested Life, and it talks about Jesus' relationship with his disciples. And some of you, you're probably really good at investing, and, and uh, you know what investing is. It's taking something that's seemingly small at the time, but because you take something and you, and you invest it over the, a long course of time, that little something becomes a big something. And then on top of that, you begin to add interest and compound interest. And pretty soon, something that starts little ends up being very big and very significant. What we see in the Bible is that Jesus invested in people. He had this, this ability to take something small and do something big with it. His first miracle, what did he do? Took water, turned it into wine. He fed thousands of people with a little boy's sack lunch. The disciples, twice they were out fishing. They didn't catch a thing. And what did Jesus do? He helped them catch the biggest catch of their lives. Jesus would take something small and turn it into something significant. But the best example, his best investment, was his investment in a small group of men. Jesus, even though he's the Messiah, even though he's God, when he came to earth, he didn't disciple thousands of people. He didn't disciple hundreds of people. He discipled 12 men, 12 ordinary people. They were small, insignificant in number. They were small and insignificant in terms of intellectual and societal standing. One even betrayed Jesus, and he knew that, but yet he still invested in that person. Those were his disciples. Those are the people that he worked through. Why them? Why 12? I don't know. 
Other than this, that's all he needed. Have you ever thought about that? We talk about it a lot here. You'll probably get used to hearing this if you're new here. Whether you realize it or not, the reason why you were sitting in this pew today, if you were to trace it back 2,000 years ago, somehow, some way, you will trace that back to these 12 men. Have you ever thought about that? Every single person sitting in here, the reason why you were sitting in here is because of the disciples. Because of these men who took what Jesus said and they said, yes, we're going to tell other people about you. That's why you're here today. Somehow, some way, that has led to you being in this place because the disciples listened to Jesus. Jesus took 12 men and he absolutely changed the world. John chapter 15, we're going to skip around a little bit here, uh, 12 through 13. John 15, 12 through 13, and then skip down to 16 through 17. This is what it says. This is a conversation that Jesus has with his apostles. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, a greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. These are some of the last words that Jesus spoke. And we're asking the question, what is the church? The church is a group of people. The church is a gathering of people. And if you were to take the Bible and you were to write down every single thing that the church that, that describes the church, you could come up with, you know, 10, 8 things. We're going to talk about four things. Four things that describe what the church is. The, the church is marked by love. Anytime we, we read about the church, we're just completely uh, astounded at the kind of love that they had for one another. Love is one of the things that marks the church, the gathering of people. Another thing is this group of people, they gather, they get together, they talk about the word, they sing songs, they celebrate communion. That's another thing that marks the church. That's one thing we see over and over in the New Testament. Another thing is we see that they're equipped, that they're prepared to go out and to serve. And finally, they're united around one mission. Those are four things that describe the church. Now, you go to some churches, and and I'm not... I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying that's not what we do here. If you go to another church, they might have this great big fancy mission statement. This is what we think God has called us to do. We don't have that. You won't find that anywhere in this church. We feel like God has already given us our mission. Our mission is to make disciples. It's as simple as that. That is what the church's mission is, and that ought to be what your mission is in your personal life, is to make disciples of other people. That's what we are called to do. But we do have some things in our church. We have ways that we try to accomplish that. If you've got your bulletin today, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you open it up and you look in the bulletin, I should have brought one up here with me and I didn't. But you'll see four words at the top of of those pages there. You'll see four words. Encounter God, commit to his word, equip for service, and serve. That is what we as a church do. That is how we try to make disciples. We try to make sure that when you come into this place Sunday morning, that you Learn something about Jesus, that you meet Jesus, whether for your first time or for the millionth time, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to be committed to his word. And so we have classes that meet after this hour uh, that we call Commit Sunday School Classes, where we dive into the word and, and get a little bit deeper. We want people to be equipped for service, and then finally we want people to serve. That's what we as a church do. But the first thing is that the church is a group, a gathering of people, and they're marked by love. So this is what I want you to hear, that the church isn't a building, but if it were, the foundation would be love. 
The church isn't a building, but if it were, the foundation would be love. And we see it in the New Testament. If you read the, the New Testament, you'll read about churches where people were selling their possessions just to take care of one another. We read a story about a guy and, and his wife who sell a field and they give everything to the church. They want the church to have it. The, I mean, we read about how there's one church that talks about how they met together and they had everything in common. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. It talks about how they ate together, they spent time together, and we think, how is that possible? How is it possible for people to have that kind of love for one another? Another question, is that kind of love that we see in the New Testament evident in the church today? Is that kind of love evident in our church today? And I want to tell you, yes, it is. Maybe not to the same level as we see here, but I can tell you I've seen it. Our daughter, Maddie, you guys, most of you know the story. She was born six weeks early. If you've ever had a baby premature, you understand this, that, that things are, are a little different, aren't they? You don't have your nursery ready. You ever thought about that? Um, you don't have clothes bought, maybe. Uh, you don't have things like diapers bought because you thought you had more time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, all these things, uh, it happens when you have a premature baby. There's all these things like we didn't have a car seat. We didn't have our nursery done. All these things. And this church just poured love and graciousness on us. When, I mean, just you wouldn't believe the generosity that this church showed to us. And, and so that love is definitely evident in the church today. And I know some of you have seen it as well. There's been things that have happened in your life. And there are things that continue to happen in this church. And this church, uh, the love that they show for one another, it, that's what we ought to be doing. It's, it's just incredible. So could we do better? Yes. But I want to say this kind of love is evident in the church today. We see glimpses of that. But what I want to know is if the church is marked by love, where does that love come from? How do people, I mean, you know how it is. You get two people together, and inevitably there's going to be a fight. There's going to be an argument, right? So how does a church of, you know, 150, 200 people, how in the world are we able to get along? This church in the New Testament, how is it that they met together and had everything in common? Did it mean that they always agreed on everything? No. So what does that mean? How is it possible for a group of people to get along like that? Well, it comes from love. It's because we have a love that is different than worldly love. And I, I want to read just a little bit about it here. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is our text for today. Don't worry, the sermon's not just starting, okay? We just had a little introduction, okay? Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is our text for today. And this is what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in, for, and, has, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, there, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul writes these words to the church at Ephesus. And, the, and you need to understand that in the Bible there's two groups of people. There's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. The Jews were descendants of Abraham. God had made a covenant with him. They were a special people. And everybody else who wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile. Well, when Jesus came, he made it known that this message wasn't just for Jews, it was for everyone. And so there were these walls between Jews and everyone else. God had set the Jews apart for, the, for a purpose. They want, he wanted the Jews to tell everybody about the one true God, but time and time again, the Jews used what God gave them as a responsibility, as like a privilege. They kind of turned their nose up at other people, and that's not what God had in mind. He wanted them to, to tell other people about the one true God, but time and time again, they just ignore these other people, or sometimes they start worshiping their gods, and that's not what God had in mind. So he's speaking to the Gentiles, and he says, you were once far off from God. You were alienated from Christ. Uh, you were alienated from the Jews. You were alienated from the promises of the covenant. And you say, well, why would God alienate them from that? God didn't alienate them from his plan. The Jews did. The Jews alienated everyone else that wasn't like them. Even Peter himself had troubles with racism. Paul had to confront him and say, hey, listen, you were treating Jews differently than you're treating everybody else, and that's not right. So this, is, this was hard for the Jews, but they had alienated everyone else. And so he, so, so he says here, they used to be far off, but now they've been brought near to God. That's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, that's a verse that just jumped out at me this week. When I read that part... They used to be far from God, but now they're brought near. That just like that brought joy to my heart because I know what it's like to be far from God. And I look around and I know that there are some of you in here who have been very far from God. And to be brought near to him, that, that's just an amazing thing, isn't it? But what happens when somebody gets close to God? You remember what happens in the Bible when somebody gets close to God? Adam and Eve, what did they do? They hid. <laughs> They hid from God. They didn't want to be found. Isaiah, when he came close to God, you know what he did? He fell on his face as though he were a dead man. Peter, after the miraculous catch of fish, you know what he did? He fell on his face before Jesus, and he said, Jesus, get away from me. I can't be in your presence. I'm a sinner. I have no business being anywhere close to you. You've got to get away from me. You see, it's a scary thing to be close to God because when we get close to God, we become painfully aware of our sin. You see, sin is what separates us from God. But it says here that we are now brought near. But how is that possible, to be brought near to God? If, if, God, if we're sinful and sin and God can't coexist, how is it that we can be near God? It says through the blood of Jesus. You're not brought close to God because you're doing a really good job at not sinning. That's not how it works. We're brought near to God by the covering of Jesus' blood. As some people, when we start talking about grace and mercy, they always like to say, yeah, but remember the God of the Old Testament, you know, the God of wrath. And, and I agree with that. I mean, when we talk about God, we don't just take the Old Testament and throw it out. But people say, you know, God hasn't changed. I know that God hasn't changed at all. But our relationship with God has changed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So God hasn't changed, but our relationship with him has, and it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It says here that we have peace with God because of his love for us. The wall of sin separating us from God is gone. You remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? A lot of things happened. It got dark, right? 
Another thing that happened, though, is the temple curtain tore from top to bottom. And this curtain, it wasn't just a thin curtain. We're talking about a thick woven curtain. It tore from top to bottom. And that curtain separated the holy places in the temple from the common places. And so the symbolism there is that Jesus has died and we have access to God like we've never had before. And it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ covering our sin. We have peace with God because of his sacrifice on the cross. But he doesn't just bring us peace with God. It's because of his love shown for us. We don't deserve God's love, do we? And we were completely humbled and heartbroken by what Jesus did on the cross for us, or at least I am. I hope you are. I mean, we are humbled by that fact of what Jesus did for us. But we don't just have peace with God. We have peace with other people. It says here that the new man is in place of two. What used to be two people is now one. It says we are one body through the cross. So we aren't unified together as believers by a common adherence to the law. It's not because of our morality that we have things in common. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So how is it that a group of 150 to 200 people can all get along and have everything in common? It's because they have the most important thing common in common. That's Jesus their need for Jesus Christ. It says here, one nation, one body, one household. God's desire is that we as a church are unified. And that's not easy to do, is it? We live in a very divided world, don't we? There's white and there's black and there's Republican and there's Democrat and there's male and female in the church. There's hymns and there's choruses. There's all these things that threaten to divide us. But the thing that ought to unite us is our belief in Jesus Christ. Our belief in him trumps everything else. It doesn't matter what other issues come up. Our belief in Jesus Christ is what pulls us together. It's like uh, if the church, it talks about here how the church is a body. Let's say you're out playing football. And let's say you're, let's say you're a professional. So it's really important that you catch a ball. And let's say you uh, drop a pass. You don't sever your fingers off because you dropped a pass, Right? No, that's part of your body. You don't, you don't want to inflict pain on yourself. And how can you ever have a chance at catching the ball again unless you keep your fingers? But sometimes our attitude in the church is we don't treat people like body parts, do we? We have no, no trouble hacking people off, do we? Just cutting people off completely out of our lives. That's dangerous in the church. It says we're a body. It, it ought to hurt us when we have conflict with other people. It says the church is like a family. You don't just kick someone out of the family when they do something you don't like. You try to restore them. Bring them back to what they're supposed to be. Sometimes we have it in our head that you have to be good to be in church. We have kind of this sinners versus saints mentality, and that has absolutely no place in this church. Absolutely no place. As a matter of fact, if you have it in your head that you're a saint and someone else is a sinner, you are about as far from God as possible. I don't think you get much further than that. If you haven't come face to face with your own sin and what you've got going on in your life and you're worried about what everybody else is doing, that's a problem. It's a big problem with God. But the church, in a way, it's kind of weird to think about. The church, in a way, is kind of united by sin, isn't it? And that's the one thing that we all have in common, that we all sin and that we all have this dire need for Jesus. That's what brings us together, a common need for a Savior. It says here that he loved us while we were still far off. And man, we need to learn how to do the same thing for people in the church, don't we? Sometimes we kind of communicate to the world that you have to be a certain level of good before you can come into the church. That's not godly. 
That is not what God says. It says he loved us while we were still far off. You know what I think about? You know what image I get in my mind when I think about this being far off? I think of the story of the prodigal son. You remember that? It's a beautiful story about this bratty boy, rich kid, entitled. And he says, Dad, I don't have any use for you. Give me my inheritance now. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm out. Takes his money, blows it all. Ends up feeding pigs, and he's so hungry that he wants to eat the pig slop. That's how hungry he is. And he says, well, this is stupid. I'll just go back and work for my dad. And so he decides to go back and work for his dad. But here's what I love about the story. His dad was waiting for him. says he saw him while he was a long way off. He couldn't have seen him a long way off unless he was looking for him, right? It said he saw him while he was a long way off. He ran to him, threw his arms around him, said, welcome home. That's, that's the imagery I get when it talks about how he welcomed us and brought us, even though we were far from God. That's what I think about. And that ought to be how the church is, too. That ought to describe the love that the church has for one another, you know, for brothers and sisters who stumble, for people who are far from the church. We should be welcome, wel- welcoming excuse me, them here to this place. Now, at the same time, I know I need to be careful to understand that I'm not talking about universalism. This isn't like a I'm okay, you're okay kind of message. I'm talking about people who put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those people. And when those people put their hope and trust in God, they become the church. It says here that we are the house of God. It says that it's built on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles are the ones that started this thing. But it says that Christ is the cornerstone. You see, if Jesus is the cornerstone, then understand the church isn't a building, right? If Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, you need to understand that when we say the word church, we aren't talking about a building. And thank goodness for that. I mean, do you know anything about this church's history? The physical building? This is our third church building, if you didn't know that. Two other church buildings have burnt down. And it's heartbreaking. Some of you, you remember the old buildings and you have fond memories. You were married there. And it's really, it's an important building to you. But that isn't the church. And I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to have those feelings about it. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's not what this is. I'm just saying the church isn't a building. And thank goodness, because if the church were a building, it'd be long gone. But even though the building burned down, the church is still here today, isn't it? And that's because the church is not a building. It's not a place. The church is people. People who follow God. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The rebuilt temple was destroyed by the Romans. And it says here that now God lives, not in a building, but that God lives in believers. See, the church isn't a building, but if it were, the foundation would be love. The love that Jesus had for us dying on the cross. The love that Jesus had for these 12 men who, they weren't anything special, just everyday guys. But the apostles, they built the foundation but we are being built into the house of God. So the church isn't a building. The church is people. The church is you guys, disciples, followers of Jesus, being faithful to what God has called us to do. We are people who know the love that Jesus has had for us, and we love other people with that kind of love. What kind of love did Jesus have for us? Nothing illustrates the love that Jesus had for us better than the cross. That kind of love, sacrificial love. And if Jesus loved us with that kind of love, and he loves us with grace and mercy, we as a church, as believers, we've got to have that same kind of love for other people. Sacrificial love for your spouse, for your kids, 
for your friends, for fellow believers, for the community, the kind of love where you will give something of yourself for someone else. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Not loving when it's convenient, not loving when it looks good, not loving when people see us and they say, oh, well, that's a great person. Sacrificial love. That's what defines the church. The church is a group of people who love like no one else loves. That ought to describe us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day you've given us today. We thank you for the chance to be together in, in this house of worship, in this place. We're thankful, Lord, for the people that are here. And we're thankful that, that the church isn't a building, Lord, but the church is, is people. The church is you living within us, doing the things that you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that we will take that responsibility seriously, that this building isn't just a place that we go to and that we leave it behind and we act completely different than the rest of the week, but, Lord, that we are people who live out what we know the Word says to do, to make disciples of other people. Lord, I pray that we will love with the same kind of love that you've shown to us, sacrificial love, love no matter what. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. It's your name I pray. Amen. We uh, are coming to our time of what we call invitation. And it's just that. It is an invitation. I am inviting you to do something. Some of you this morning maybe relate to this idea that you feel far from God. And what I want you to understand is that is your choice. And you say, well, that's kind of rude. What I mean by that is you're not far from God because of God. You're far from God because of you. And that's good news, because all it takes is a change of heart on your part. If you want to be close to God, that can happen today. All it takes is one step in the right direction. If you're far from God, you don't have to stay there. You can become close to God. You don't have to clean yourself up and get rid of your sin to come to God. That's what he's there for, to get rid of it for you. Some of you, you think you're near to God, and it's because you've done something on your own. And I want to warn you that you are farther from God than anybody else. If you were sitting in this room and you think you've got it all together, that's a problem with God. And you need to repent of that. And you need to ask God to soften your heart and to bring to mind the sin that you have in your life before you start looking at other people with judgmental eyes. God has called us, though, to be united through Jesus' blood. And I, I want to ask you this, church, what does it mean if we are united by Jesus' blood, but yet we allow ourselves to divide? What does that say about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? If he died on the cross to unite us with the Father and to unite us with one another, what does that say about what we think of his sacrifice if we allow things to divide us? I don't think it speaks well of us. See, the focus for us as Christians needs to be on Jesus. So I think we need to ask the, the question, what has gotten in the way of that? And I hope that it can never be said about this church that we majored in the minors, so to speak, that we're so distracted with buildings and agendas and things like that that we forgot the main thing, to share the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to do. I don't know what you have on your mind and, and heart today. We've got some elders that lead this church, and uh, they're going to go to the back of the room. And we do this every week. It's something we started just a couple months ago. We just want to let you know that let's go ahead and stand together. 
we just want you to know that the church is here for you and these guys are here for you. If you got something on your mind, you know, somebody in your family's sick or you've got something going on in your marriage or just your life or your job or whatever, I want you to know these guys, they'd be happy to pray for you, okay? If you've got something on your mind like that, they'd, they'd love to do that. Uh, maybe today you realize, you know what, you are far from God and you want to be close. Again, that's up to you. I want to invite you to take the first step in coming to the Father. If you want to place your hope in Jesus Christ today, you can do that. You can do it right where you're at. But if you want to talk to somebody about that, if you want to pray with somebody about that, these guys are going to be in the back of the room. Let's stand together. Let's sing this song.